Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special podcast mini-series hosted by The CRISPR Journal. I'm Kevin Davis, executive editor of The CRISPR Journal. And in this episode, we're talking about single-cell screening with Britt Adamson of Princeton University. This podcast is sponsored by Horizon Discovery, the leader in CRISPR functional genomics, offering a large portfolio of CRISPR screening tools, reagents, and cell line generation. Horizon inspired cell solutions. So as I mentioned, we're delighted to be joined by Britt Adamson, who is assistant professor in the Department of Molecular Biology and the Lewis Sigler Institute for Integrative Genomics at Princeton University. Hello, Britt. Hi. Thanks so much for making a bit of time to talk functional genomics and single cell screening with us. How did you get interested in CRISPR? Do you remember the moment when you uh, a little light bulb went off in your head? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it was a moment. So as a PhD student, I was up at Harvard Medical School and spent years studying DNA repair. So how cells, thinking a lot about how cells fix breaks. Um, And this was all pre- what some would call the pre-CRISPR era. Yeah. Um, and we were doing a lot of functional genomics using uh, RNAi-based technologies to perturb genes. Uh-huh. Um, and I was using both of those to study processes of DNA repair. And I graduated in 2012, which I think is very timely in the CRISPR yeah. story, because, um, of course, you know, the first demonstrations that this was a tool for genome editing were, you know, the following year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, frankly, I had a lot of what I had done as a PhD student centered around fighting with the limitations of RNAi technology, um, the sort of pervasive off-targets and uh, the low specificity. And, you know, I have to say, is when I was finishing my PhD, I was a little bit disillusioned with the whole field and mm. thinking about, you know, what I would do next. And those 2013 CRISPR papers really, I think to some people in the field, there were obviously people who saw this coming, but I didn't see it coming. It sort yeah. of came out of nowhere. Yeah. And all of a sudden there was this energy and excitement over what we could use these tools for. And I, you know, being someone who studied both DNA repair and uh, had been doing screens, it was just this thing I had to work on. You know, I had spent so much time thinking about the limitations of current tools. It just felt like at the time that I was getting ready to do a postdoc that this was a place where I felt like I could actually make improvements on things. And so, you know, I think it was really for me just the perfect timing. And then I did my postdoc with Jonathan Weissman out at UCSF and I started talking to him about, you know, ideas he had for CRISPR screening tools. And I was falling all over myself to get started really at that, <laughs> point, at that point. So, I, you know, it was, it was interesting. I had gone from, a, you know, a PhD student who was just disillusioned illusioned with things to just so much energy to get wow, started. That's, and, that's and such a great amazing. story uh, to, to yeah. see the light go off. Big thanks to this uh, technology. So you mentioned uh, going to UCSF and when I Google, as I just did earlier today, Britt Adamson and Single Cell. The first hit I got was your 2016 cell paper, I think a landmark paper. So I know you're a little bit biased, but standing back and with the benefit of hindsight, what was the significance of that study? It's an excellent question. So that 
work, I have to be completely honest. I had finished working on a collaborative effort to build the CRISPR I and CRISPR interference and CRISPR activation libraries in Jonathan's lab. And I was then just psyched to use those tools. And this effort did not start in my mind anyway, as a new sort of functional genomics platform. I was studying an integrated stress response and I wanted to do some neat screening experiments to sort of tease them apart. And the platform really started in my head as a way to do those experiments. It was actually much smaller. You know, we were studying a transcriptional response and in talking to Jonathan and others, it seemed like a really great way to actually just do those experiments. And then, of Mm -hmm. course, as we started doing them, we realized this was pretty neat. I mean, to be fair, I think other people realized that it was a platform before I did. You know, I think the significance of those papers, and I should mention that, you know, that publication came out with two other single-cell RNA-seq-based screening papers. So there was a paper that, you know, I'm also an author on that we worked closely from uh, Aviv Regev's lab doing something similar, and then one from Ido Amit's lab. And I think those three papers together, they really just are, were the first proof of principle that we could do these screens, right? And I think the real significance is that we went from a place of scalable functional genomics where we had all these beautiful new tools for perturbing genes in different ways. Mm. But the phenotypes we had, we were still very much limited by the phenotypes. So, you know, you do these big genome scale screens and you were trying to learn something systematic and something about mechanism, but it was still very hazy because, you know, you're, you were taking one measurement. Um, mm. But here we really had a resolution that at least I had not come across before. And I think the neat thing is I've seen now even post that paper and some of our other work that sometimes mechanism just falls right out of these screens in this Uh way that is really, really satisfying. So, Britt, you said there's some good examples of mechanism just falling out from single cell screening experiments. Could you give an example? One of them from the 2016 paper is really neat. You know, we were studying the unfolded protein response, and we had noticed that certain perturbations really gave a level of selective transcriptional response. And, you know, it sort of, without going into too much detail, led to a hypothesis that there was this sort of feedback mechanism in the cell that when you uh, perturbed a certain gene function, the cell then upregulated those genes through a gene expression program. And that hypothesis was something that really came out of two screens, Mm. right? We then did some follow-up work on it, but it was sort of a level of detailed hypothesis from Mm. those screens that we just wouldn't have seen uh, with, with lower resolution. Right. I'm sure you're seeing more and more investigators trying to learn from your some of the work that you've done and, and move into these sorts of single cell screening projects. Do you have any any words of wisdom, any technical tips that you would offer for people who might be thinking or just embarking on these types of projects? Yeah. What's so cool about this field right now is that there's so much technology development happening. Yeah. And so, you know, there are many ways to do screens with single cell readouts now. Um, And I think what I have seen is the best advice I can give anyone. And this is when I talk to collaborators, this is the first thing I always say is that 
there are options for doing these screens. There's different platforms now, and each has advantages and disadvantages. And I think that really thinking through the technical aspects of the question that you're asking and the model that you're using is really important. So details down to things like how long do I perturb the cells for before I do the single cell RNA sequencing can have a sort of large impact on the the results that come out of a screen. And, you know, so I've seen some screens where in hindsight, one technical aspect of it mattered a lot. And then you sort of figure that out and you circle back and, and you redo the screen. But I think if you think very deeply about these things up front, then, you know, you can sort of optimize the system ahead of time. What are some of the recent studies or advances, not necessarily in your own lab, because we're going to talk about that in a minute, but what Mm -hmm. what are some of the fun things that you're seeing out there that have really caught your eye? I mean, I think the most exciting thing for me in this field right now is the applications. You know, what are people using this technology for? There was actually a speaker here two days ago um, from uh, Martin Campman's lab at UCSF. We were postdocs together, actually, and they had used iteration of single cell CRISPR screening in this just gorgeous differentiation system that he had set up uh, driving iPSCs into neurons and really using the transcriptional landscape to learn something um, about neuronal function. And it was just such a neat application of the tool. Um, And they had learned some really interesting things there. So, you know, there's a lot of technology development still going on. How do we make these platforms easier to use, more scalable? And we've been doing a fair bit of that. I've been doing a fair bit of that over the last couple of years too. But I think the really exciting thing is how people are using the tools. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue into what you are doing now. So you've uh, Mm -hmm. you've landed at Princeton uh, and joined the faculty there following your very successful time at UCSF in the Wiseman Lab. Um, What's the overarching goal or focus of your new lab? Yeah, so I've sort of uh, circled back more or less to what we're talking about at the beginning. Um, We're really using some of these tools now to think about questions in the field of DNA repair. So, you know, in Jonathan's lab, I'd done a lot of technology development, studied some other stress responses. Mm. And what's cool about the CRISPR field, at least from my perspective, is that it's both a wonderful tool for perturbing gene function, so we can use it for functional genomics, Mm. um, but it's also a nucleus, right? And so And there's this whole field of uh, genome engineering that is, you know, also rich with technology development and interesting applications. And so, so far, we've been using some of the CRISPR tools to really study interesting questions in DNA repair. Someone recently told me that, you know, one of the projects that we have going on in the lab, they told me that thought it was really interesting because we're, we're using CRISPR to learn about CRISPR. Um, so, <laughs> which is which is a neat way of putting it. That's um, awesome, yeah. Yeah, so we still have some technology development efforts uh, in the lab, both in functional genomics uh, and in genome editing. Yeah. Um, but the biological drive right now is to really learn a little bit more at the systems level, sort of how pathways of DNA repair are, are wired in a cell. Right. Brilliant. Just two final questions. I know when you're recruiting, and I'm sure you're still looking for a few good postdocs and students to, uh, to build yeah, out the lab. Yeah. Um, but in addition to cell biology and genomics, which are fairly obvious, you also stress the importance of computer science and computational biology in your research. Could you say a little bit more about why is that so important? 
in our lab, we're doing CRISPR screens with what I like to call high content readouts, right? At this point, it's not just single cell RNA sequencing. Um, we're using sort of other high content phenotypes where instead of just taking like one simple ratio of a bulk average population, we're mm -hmm. taking many measurements per, sometimes per cell and all the time uh, per perturbation. And so these data sets become very big and they have unique challenges that I think think really require, you know, not just sort of computer science and computational biology, but oftentimes math too on top of that. Yeah. And one of the things I love about this field is the intersection of those disciplines. And I think it's an intersection that's particularly fun because, and I'm trained as a geneticist and a cell biologist. And so I get really excited about these data sets from one angle, but, uh, you know, oftentimes my colleagues who are in the other disciplines, they are just as excited about these data sets, um, but from a very unique perspective. And so it is a field where you do get to work with different types of expertise, um, but not just work with that expertise, like really be part of a community where people from different disciplines are very excited about the tools and the experiments that are going on. And so that's been really fun. Right. One of the reasons I'm at Princeton is because I'm actually part of the Lewis Siegler Institute for Integrative Genomics, which yep. is just a fantastic interdisciplinary yeah. home for science. And so um, it's really the last year here has been really fun yeah. getting to know the colleagues from the different fields and sort yeah. of how they their take on what's happening. Excellent. Well, my final question is, you've touched on functional genomics. Uh, I mentioned it a couple of times, and, and that is the overarching theme of this series. But I would just like to probe that a little bit more. I remember back in the mid-90s when I was the editor of Nature Genetics, and we would put on an annual conference and selecting functional genomics as the topic for one of those meetings because it was this incredibly new, exciting, buzzworthy term without necessarily completely understanding what it meant. And it seems to have gone away and now it's back again. Is that how you see it or is that how you always approach science? Actually, I think this is a really interesting question, but let me ask you, when you were planning that conference, yeah. what was functional genomics? Like, what did it mean at that time when I was in yeah, high school I, at the oh time? Oh my God, so you can't I put didn't. me on the spot like that. That's not fair. <laughs> uh, it's my job to ask you the questions. But that was 22 or 23 years ago. I remember... I think Peter Goodfellow was one of our star speakers yeah. and you know he's he's not retired now. So I it really was the very nascent beginnings of moving from genetics at least human genetics as a tool for just mapping and then isolating disease genes to now beginning to think about more functional mechanistic studies but beyond that I really Was it mostly like in model organisms at that I'm sure time? yeah I'm sure there was yes but yes yeah, of course yeah, yeah. 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 So, you know, I started my PhD in 2006. So, you know, my awareness of this field has really been starting with the genome scale RNAi libraries that yeah. were coming out at the time. So for me, my perspective on this has just been like a slow burn, yeah. um, you know, the slow ramp, not even that slow, actually, no, no. quite fast and getting faster. 
But yeah, I think it's just been growing and growing. And I think what functional genomics is, I think is expanding too. I've always thought of it in the context of perturbation screens and sort of the large question of what do genes do in a cell. But, you know, a lot of the conferences I go to now, they're integrating uh, genome editing technologies with screening technologies and population genetics. And I think what's really cool is seeing how the field is growing to really begin to be able to do sort of systems level genetics, which is really neat. I don't know. I mean, if you have a longer view on things, maybe it's a resurgence, but it just seems like to me, just this uh, field that's been rapidly growing and expanding. Because you're so Um, young. Yes, maybe that's why. Maybe I need to have a longer view on these things. But I think what is really, truly exciting is where we're going with all of this. So, you know, I talk to a lot of colleagues who are, you know, still thinking about doing single gene perturbation screens. And there's still, I think, a lot to be gained there. But um, we now have technologies, for example, like the ones I've been working on, where we can do those with higher resolution phenotypes so we can get like a clearer view of mechanism from these screens. But there's also these great efforts to now do combinatorial genetics too. So moving into the realm of doing multiple perturbation screens, right, which is an area of functional genomics that, you know, at least in human cells that, you know, is still a little bit untapped, right? And so... I think what's really exciting is to see where everything goes and what the new tools will be. Yeah. Well, we couldn't agree more. And one of the fun things about this series is the chance to talk and uh, and hear from some of the emerging new investigators who I think are really going to drive CRISPR technology for uh, you know, many years to come. I hope so. You're certainly right in so. that group, Britt. Thank, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Taking I really time appreciate to it. On this podcast series, thanks to Horizon for organizing it. And thanks to you, the audience, for tuning in. Stay tuned. We have one more episode to go in this mini series. But for now, for everyone on the CRISPR Journal, I'm Kevin Davis. Thanks so much. Bye-bye for now. 